So welcome back to Leaders of Consulting. It's Jonathan Bailey Strong here, bringing you interviews and insights from experts at the forefront of the consulting industry. On today's episode, we have Mark Boundy, founder of Boundy Consulting and an expert in B2B selling. He's the author of Radical Value, Elevate Your Company and Career. Mark, welcome to the show. Jonathan, man, is it great to be here. Thank you. Yes, lovely to have you on. So Mark, I'd love to just start off with, if you could take us back a little bit, I had a look at some of your background and it looks to me as though you weren't always in sales, but it's something you eventually found yourself led towards. Can you tell us a little bit more about that journey? Yeah, I, I like to joke with people that um, people kept telling me I needed to be in sales and I didn't want to be a salesperson. So uh, I had 20 years of a, of a cage match of me and the sales career fighting it out. And <laughs> eventually I lost and, and uh, came into sales. My first job was as a product manager at a small uh, electronics components, uh, wire and cable company, WL Gorn Associates. So I was actually the general manager of one of these product businesses, um, not very unlike what product management is at a lot of companies. I was truly a general manager with full P&L responsibility and actual uh, ability to control a lot of the profitability. And that started me on a journey. Uh, that company was relentless and maniacal about understanding the customer's business, understanding the customer's value. And only when you understand that customer's business, do you know how you're going to grow their business using your stuff. So I never sold my stuff. It was always an, uh, a mindset of how are we going to grow the customer's business using our stuff. Um, so that was kind of my first grown-up job out of college. And that mindset was firmly implanted. And, and I took that mindset through a product manager, um, a different kind of product manager job at Lucent Technologies, which is much more a technical or project management type job, uh, through uh, some sales jobs and some consulting jobs in commercial real estate finance, commercial finance. Then I went into sales consulting for the, the world's largest B2B sales training and consulting company, uh, Miller Hyman, now part of Corn Ferry. Um, and I had taken that, that mindset, that foundation from that first job into this sales training world, realizing that, yes, at all of the sales training methodologies talk about the customer's business and talk about the customer's outcomes, but they don't emphasize it. They aren't maniacal about it. And some bad things happen when you aren't relentlessly focused on the customer's business. Um, we talk about being customer-centric, but you know, compared to that first company where I got a real taste of what customer centricity really means, hmm. um, a lot of companies just aren't. Interesting. So I'm curious about that, that that first company that was very customer centric. What do you think about the culture there that was so unique? Was it something to, to do with the founding team or what was it about it that made made it so customer centric? Um, they were founded from the very get go uh, by a founding team that believed that uh, customer value is what generates pricing power. As a matter of fact, I no longer call it pricing power. It's pricing permission. Your customers only give you a permission to charge that high price if they perceive the value. Not if you have the value, but if they perceive it. So it's not enough for you to have the value. They have to know you have the value. And so that was 
we would often ask one question inside Gore, what's the value? And everybody would ask everybody else, what's the value? If I asked a, a machine operator to give me a prototype, can you produce a prototype of this drawing? What's the value? They would not run a prototype unless they knew what the customer's business was, how our product was going to help them grow that business, and why we were going to be worth no less than a 20% price premium over the next expensive cable on the market. Uh, my biggest customer, by the way, was 10 times the price of the competitor because we knew the customer's business, what pro business problems we were solving, and how we were growing that customer's business using our products. So that idea from the outset that it is the, the company, the, the founders had founded the company inculcating everybody with the idea that we don't create products, we deliver value. So you better know your value. And everybody in the company had permission and license to challenge everybody else on what's our value for this customer. And if you couldn't answer, they wouldn't do anything for you. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, it sounds, yeah, it sounds like that also gives you somewhat of a more unique lens when it comes to approaching the whole sales conversation, the whole sales approach. And can you tell me how that's influenced you? And one of the things you brought up when we were chatting earlier is how you see a lot of companies following uh, what you termed the predictive revenue model of sales performance. And can you tell me how does your customer-centric view jive with that? Yeah, Jonathan, thanks for asking. So I have been struggling uh, my for the last decade since this book, uh, Predictable Revenue, came out. And it was Predictable Revenue. After, I'm sorry I'm spacing on the, on the author, but um, it's how um salesforce.com became so successful and they took the selling process emphasis emphasis on selling subdividing it into little bits of roles and giving specialized um jobs to each of the people involved uh in each one of those little segments and there's somebody who's in, who specializes in cold calling and somebody who specializes in inbound calls and somebody who specializes in demonstrations and somebody who specializes in closing and somebody who specializes in customer success and somebody who specializes in on and on and on and that just never made sense to me like i know people are doing it and i they by golly, they seem to be succeeding, but I don't get how or why. Because I'd come from an expert, uh, from this background of be an expert on your customer's business, be that trusted advisor. And, um, you know, Gartner has said that only 3% of salespeople are considered trusted advisors. So it is, it's either a really high bar that nobody meets, or it's an average bar that nobody wants to meet anymore because they're all doing this. Uh, subdivide and, and optimize sort of a strategy. And I just have been wrestling with why that's successful until I saw another bit of research. And here it is. Customers think that salespeople are the second to the last information source. They rank nine out of 10 on possible information sources. They will trust themselves, their prior experience, their friend's prior experience, a consultant, the internet, Anything above, the only thing that salespeople rank ahead of is some rubber chicken lunch at your local Rotary Club. Man, that's, that's kind of a horrible indictment of sales. However, the research went on to say, you know what? 
we would trust salespeople more, we would consult them more, we're willing to consult them in a couple of very specific circumstances. This by and the, the, that circumstances are there's four basic ones. This decision is new to me, it's new to my company, it's risky to me, or it's risky to my company. Now, lots of things make up riskiness, but if that decision, if I don't feel self-sufficient in my ability to make that decision, I'm willing to look a lot of places, including these salespeople who've received a lot of trainings on the subtlety of their product or service. But um, if I feel well-equipped, I'm not going to suffer the, the crappy salespeople who end up calling me with some cold call person who knows nothing about me and my business and is just trying to get me into a mindless demo that's going to be death by PowerPoint. So that's it. Willingness to be consulted, which is made up of some composite of new to me, new to my company, was risky to me, risky to my company. And I've, I'm actually working on uh, a, an index of customer self-sufficiency, customer willingness to engage. And the more that is the the more the customer is willing to engage, the more likely it is that you're going to prefer that trusted advisor model. And the less, the more self-sufficient you feel, like I've got this, I buy this thing every year. I'm an expert in buying. I know all the questions to ask. I know the competitors. There are no new competitors. I'm not going to bother with salespeople because they are in that kind of an environment, they're a time waster. They're a time suck. And I'm not going to um, consult salespeople. That makes sense to me. When you as a customer feel like you've got this, salespeople aren't a value add to your decision. But how many times is that? So then I, now the question is, Have if you're a company leader, if you're a sales leader, and people have told you, we're going to go after this efficiency model of subdividing the sales process and making everybody really efficient and turning leads into a machine and do this whole thing that was described in this book, Predictable Revenue. But the decision is one where your customers don't want that. They want a trusted expert. Are you applying this efficiency tool, which is selling efficiency to a situation where your customers really want somebody to help them with their buying process. Remember that predictable revenue is not about the customer's buying process. It's about your efficiency selling. The, the trusted expert model is about your quality buying. And there are some customer decision parameters that make that should drive you as a company leader, as a sales leader to which of these two sales models do I want? Um, and I'm afraid that too many people have seen others succeed with this predictable revenue, this subdivide and optimize model that um, they think it works, but they haven't decided if it applies to their product and their decision and their customer's decision. So what I'm hearing here is customers who aren't really so engaged in that process, it's a little bit siloed off. It's uh, you know divided between different people. And you also have these sort of shorter term focused incentives for salespeople or people part of that sales team. If a sales leader finds himself managing a team where they have those problems, like what are some of the first steps you often tell people to kind of focus on or, or look at first? Well, I want to start with, and, and the entire reference has got to be, tell me the nature of your customer's buying decision. Is the customer buying decision one where the customer is really comfortable 
And do you, are you ha- fine with that customer being comfortable? Sometimes we have some differentiation that my comfortable customer doesn't, isn't aware of that they should be aware of so that my differentiation can actually make a difference in the customer's buying decision. So I have to force them to become more comfortable with a trusted expert. Uh, so not, the customer's starting point of how comfortable they are is their starting point. And now you have to decide, is that the appropriate thing? Do I just have to just be get myself uh, a bunch of order takers, a process just to find these customers who are out there involved in a buying process and just get out in front of their buying process, be there for their buying process and ask them all the questions uh, to make sure that I'm just helping them walk through that buying process. Um, by selling to them? Or do I have to open their eyes? Do I have to open customers' eyes to new things that the customer hadn't anticipated before they called me in? If that's the case, now you have to ask yourself if reaching out to them with insultingly poorly informed SDRs and BDRs is inhibiting the ability for trusted experts to establish themselves as trusted experts? Or did you just poison the well? And you have to either get those SDRs to be much more expert, ask better questions and give them some business acumen so they can begin having a business discussion or not use them. So that's that's very unlike every SDR and BDR that I've come across. Yeah. But and by, I, when, when you say SDR and BDR, just for, for those people oh, who aren't thank you. too, too thank familiar you. with yeah. the TLA. No, John, yes. Yeah. The TLA, you can't do business without a good TLA, That's right. which is, which is a three letter acronym. Um, an SDR is a sales development rep, which is normally uh, a term used for people who do outbound cold calling. Mm-hmm. Business development rep is for somebody who does inbound call response, answering calls from website leads and so forth. So, and sometimes people reverse those terms, but inbound or outbound call center agents whose motivation is getting you in front of a demo or getting you off of their plate and into the next stage in whatever your company's sales process is. And regardless of where that customer is in their buying process, let's just move them through our sales process. And um, so those development reps selling and buying development reps, um, as I said, most of them are not expert enough in the customer's business to be able to have even an initial business conversation, which means that your customers talk to them for 10 seconds, realize this isn't a person who's going to be an expert for me. This mm-hmm. isn't a person who's a viable information resource for me. I'm going to go elsewhere until I'm ready to buy. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is a responsible decision for your customer to make. If, they, uh, if they're, I, I defy any of your listeners to think back on an experience when somebody who is obviously unable to have a business conversation with you started chattering their script. And you said, oh my gosh, how insightful. I need to get that person. I need to get the next person in that company's line on in with any of my people or get them with me. Because this this person's script sounds so insightful that I must have them as part of my information uh, team. When when would that ever happen? Yeah. So 
you're asking your customer to do something that you would never dream of doing yourself. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. One of the things that really interested me when I was uh, going through your book was how you talk about when working with customers or, or trying to help them. Oftentimes, if there's a buying decision, it requires change in organizations. And for someone to get the company to make that change, it requires quite an effort and it requires a lot of capital on their part. And there are lots of risks that they're taking in order to basically change the status quo. And so in a sense, one of the ways to be effective in the sales position is to help those change makers to help enable that change going forwards. Jonathan, yeah, Jonathan, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, Miller Hyman and I both say that as a sales professional, your job is not to sell. Your number one job is to be a change agent, to help. So when your customer is thinking about buying your product or service, they're not just thinking about the cash cost of acquisition. There's the cash cost of implementation. There's the cash cost of the probability of a failed implementation. There's the career cost of a failed implementation. There is the embarrassment of having advocated for the wrong solution. There are so many costs that don't appear on your bid. And so your job is to make those costs smaller. Your job as the selling company, if you have a enterprise software that takes a fair amount of heavy lifting to change that company's, that customer's processes from the old to your new, um, uh, brushing them off and saying, poof, a miracle occurs, you know, you're going to launch our stuff and everything's going to be fine. Um, you are addressing probably the largest cost of acquisition and it doesn't appear on your bid. So, our job as sales professionals is to understand the customer's business, get everybody who's involved in that change engaged, get them all planning. Um, a great friend of mine, Rob Hartnett, loves the phrase, and, and I've, I've stolen it for myself. He says, do business as if you're already doing business. Sell as if you're already doing business together. So that's taking the stance of let's plan how this go live is going to work most successfully. What challenges are we going to have? What do we have to think about? Who has to be engaged? Who has to be brought in? What are their challenges? What kind of risks do they feel and how can we address them? How can we mitigate all of those risks? And that's something you do with a current business partner. And most salespeople don't do it with a prospective new business partner. And there's a big difference there, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it also, it's, it's a big challenge with large organizations as well, where there is that status quo, there's that natural incline to not be the person who uh, causes ruckus or anything like that. Yeah. You don't want to be the first one through the breach, do you? Um, That's right. And uh, a famous behavioral economic, e economist uh, was with a huge company that had 20 divisional vice presidents and the CEO. He was in this um, senior leaders meeting. And he said, all right, I've got 20 projects, one project for each of your divisional VPs. Here's the, here's the arithmetic. The project is going to cost half a million dollars. And there is a 50% uh, chance that 
you're just going to lose all half million dollars and nothing's going to, no, no, there's going to be no payback. There's a 50% chance that it's going to pay back $4 million. And then he asked, went around and asked people to raise their hands. Who is going to take that bet? And one division vice president said, yes. And the CEO blew his stack. And he said, no, I want everybody to take that chance. And that's the reality. If you're that division vice president and you spend a half a million dollars and it gets wasted, you know that your career is going to be impacted. But the CEO wants you to take risks, but doesn't recognize the value of rewarding risk-taking. And so risks aren't rewarded. And so that, you know, when I explain that, that the arithmetic, it just doesn't make sense why you would do that. 50% chance of a, of a four to one return and 50% chance of a one times law. If all 20 people take that bid, we're going to be so much better off as a team, as a company. Um, but that's just not the way humans in an organization make real decisions. So knowing that as a sales professional, knowing that as a selling organization, what does that mean about your change management program? about your customer change management um, business case. And go back and look at the business case for your product or service and look at how you're addressing the, the, the risk mitigation. And I think you're going to be a little bit unpleasantly surprised at how your proposals stack up against the risk aversion of the people who are expected to buy your proposals. I'm also reminded of a, a concept. I think it was a chap called Vantakesh Rao, an author. He talks about something called the Peter Principle, where uh, maybe this is a little bit uh, disparaging of large organizations, but where in, in corporate um, organizations, oftentimes people are promoted to their level of incompetence. Yep. Um, and so... At that level, you know, when people reach that level, their incentive is just to keep the status quo and not make those those big changes. It's it's not only their incentive; it's their mm. ability. They've they've proven that they have started making bad decisions at the level you're at, and so uh, there's no good reason to to improve on their skills because man, we don't do that in big companies, or. Uh, to promote them because they make bad decisions at this level. They'll only get more expensive if we promote them. Um, and, you know, in I, this is kind of a tangent, but mm -hmm. the same thing happens in B2B sales management. Frontline sales managers today are no longer coaches. I am so old. How old are you? I am so old that I was alive during the time when we used to tell sales managers, you need to provide one hour of coaching a week to your people. And now the research that we see is, you know, if you could find a way to give one hour a month to your people, your sales would get 40% better. Once a week is out the window. And the baseline is no coaching. And if you could just find eight hours a week for your each of eight, your eight subordinates, your sales would go up by monstrous amounts from the crap they're at now. And 
you know why? Your sales managers are now admins chasing down forecasts because they're assembling spreadsheets because your CRM has such crap data in it that they've got to go out and chase those things down by hand. And all they are doing is this monthly awful cycle of uh, week, week one of a month is thrashing you for why you didn't make your number and what you're going to do this month. Week two is assembling the forecast for the month. Week three is giving you a little bit of time to do some selling, but mostly what are the deals that broke down this last month since you forecasted it last Wednesday, or, you know, this week since you forecasted last Wednesday, and how can we bring some other deals that a week ago you didn't think we're going to close this month, but we've got to put them back in the forecast so the total ends up right. Week four is what are we going to do to make that forecast and how much, what deals do we have to discount to bring them into this quarter? And uh, thrashing people and this incessant, you know, we've got to have the this much in the forecast, bring a crap deal that you didn't think was going to close yesterday into something that you claim will close today. You know, it's not going to close. I know it's not going to close, but I've got to give my vice president of sales a total with this many deals. So put it in there, will you please? And nobody trusts the forecasts. And it's just a lot of chasing your tail, keeping that forecast up to snuff uh, for a forecast that everybody in the company knows is highly suspect anyway. And instead of coaching your salespeople to better performance, we're asking sales managers to do that. What, you know, what are you expecting? Cause meet effect. Effect, this is cause. You two obviously don't know each other. <laughs> obviously, very skewed incentives there, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mark, I know you've got a book out. I also see that you you have a regular podcast. I'd, I'd love for you to um, also just share like some of the, the subtopics that you address there. It's mainly focused, If correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's mainly focused around your concept of being value-driven. Yeah. Radical Value, the name of the book, uh, Radical Value, Mark Boundy, go ahead and find it on the big A. Jeff Bezos sells it. Uh, just search <laughs> bar Radical Value, Mark Boundy, um, is about understanding customer value, understanding the customer's business and their world so that you can deliver them the outcomes. Uh, value, I actually have a definition for value. Mm -hmm. Value is the desirability of the outcomes a customer perceives that they'll achieve from doing business with you. Long, wordy, obtuse definition, but it's actionable and you know where your gaps are in your value using that definition. Uh, customers don't buy your product or service, they buy their own outcomes. So you better know their outcomes. If you don't know the outcomes a customer is going to achieve from doing business with you, you can't possibly know the value. So let's start with understanding the value, understanding the outcomes. And this goes back to that first experience when people were saying, what's the value? And that question really unpacks to what's the customer's business? How do they make their money? How can we help them make more with our product or service? And what does that look like for them? How many dollars are we helping them make? And what percentage of those dollars can we charge as our price premium over the next best choice so that our customer is getting a lot of value and we're getting a ton of profit. And when you approach it that way, customers give you pricing permission. And it's no longer pricing power, it's pricing permission because the customer recognizes you're growing my business. Uh, so my whole, the book is all about making sure your salespeople, your marketing people, everybody in the company understands 
how their role connects to the customer value and what, and, and starts to develop ideas. How can we generate more? Um, so radical value is about this holistic view of your company generating outcomes for customers, which means understanding your customers. Um, and so my podcast kind of covers all those different aspects. And mm-hmm. um, this this season, I'm talking to CEOs and the way I've been explaining it to them, it's asking them, how do you lead your company to reduce customer focus, that buzzword that nobody really knows what it acts, thinks, looks, or measures like, how do you reduce that to daily operating practices in your organization? And some of the insights that CEOs have given us have been fantastic. Great stuff. It's kind of, it, it sounds very much like going back to first principles. I find it so interesting how you talk about in the book, how from, you know, speaking with executive teams, a lot of the time you ask them to describe the value that they're providing to the customer. And some of them still struggle, like yeah. people on the boards of, you know, large yeah. companies. Yeah. Um, Peter Drucker says the purpose of a company is to find and keep a customer. Well, the way you find and keep a customer is to deliver more value to that customer than it costs to deliver. So my purpose of the business, Mark Boundy's purpose of a business is to deliver more value to the customer than it costs you to deliver. So it's Peter Drucker, a little bit messier, less pithy, (laughs) but more informative. And if that is the purpose of your company, creating value for your customers, if you're a CEO or a consultant to CEOs, ask them what metrics they track what's on their dashboard and how many of those connect to the value we're delivering for our customers. And the answer to that question is usually somewhere between crickets and, oh, I have a customer satisfaction survey, which is only the product of the value measured from the customers that you successfully won, not the ones you should have won, but lost. Right. It's uh, there's a survivor bias there. Right. You're only measuring against the ones that figured it out, not the ones where you screwed up the selling process um, and not why you screwed up the selling process. And even then, it's only the customer satisfaction. None of the rest of your metrics as a corporate leader have anything to do with the purpose of your company, which is to create more value for your customers. So if you're not measuring, anything about what really matters, the purpose of your business, what's wrong with your metrics? What are you tracking instead? And how are those metrics distracting you, taking your eye off of the customer? I think that's a huge deal. Yeah. The customer satisfaction surveys. Yes. Also would seem to me to be a, like a lagging indicator instead of a leading one as well at the same time. Oh, right. Absolutely. You can only measure customer satisfaction when it's pretty much too late to do anything about it. Yeah. It's a it's the result of a result of a result. I I propose this to you. If you actually started figuring out what outcomes your customers wanted, what would happen if your marketing department started making content, web content, articles about that outcome? And there's really sophisticated um, website clack you know, tracking and so forth, you can measure clicks on your website. What would happen if you started measuring who clicked on that piece of content? Who called you based off that content? As soon as they click on content about an outcome that you're the best in the world at delivering, 
that customer is your rightful customer. They just don't know it yet. If it's an outcome that you're truly the best in the world at delivering, you can measure value from the first click on your doggone website. How much of a, that's a, that's a leading, leading indicator. You haven't had a conversation with that person and you already know that something about that outcome triggered something to the point where they wanted to spend at least another 20, 30 seconds learning more about it. Yeah. Fantastic. And I think that's, uh, that's probably a good, good note to leave off with. So Mark, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time today and, uh, yeah, hope to have you back on the show again sometime soon. Jonathan, it was a real pleasure. I, I hope this was good for you. I hope this was great for your listeners. 